0: Welcome to the newest episode of Beyond the Fame with Jason Fraley. I'm your host, Jason Fraley, picking the brains of the top filmmakers, musicians, and artists of our time. Todd Rundgren performs at Capitol Turnaround in Washington, D.C. this weekend, just days before being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I spoke with him about his biggest hits from I Saw the Light to Bang the Drum All Day, as well as his knack for pioneering music technology. Mr. Rundgren, thanks so much for joining us on WTOP.
1: My pleasure.
0: You are a legend uh, coming to the Capitol turnaround here in DC on October 17th and 18th. Um, and that's just a couple of weeks before you're officially inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame. So this is going to be a big month for you. Where, where are you um, in sort of uh, your, your post COVID touring stuff? I mean, it, ha- have you been out there for a while?
1: Um, we are playing our fourth show tonight. Um, we started last Friday and, um, in Boston. Tonight, we do our second show in Ridgefield, Connecticut. And then we're on from there. Um, And then of course, we get to DC. And the tour ends just before Thanksgiving in San Francisco. So it's a regular old tour
0: gotcha but not a regular old month as we said in between there before thanksgiving on october 30th you're going to be inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame um how excited were you to get that news
1: Uh, (laughs) i've never been in that much into the hall of fame you know it's uh there are any number of reasons but it means different things to different people and it has never really uh been high on my list of priorities but my fans have always wanted it and so when it finally happened I was glad for them and I was kind of glad for myself because I wouldn't have to go through it anymore you know this nominating stuff so I'm, I'm just kind of relieved this over with and that I won't have to hear about it again
0: <laughs> you know it's really funny whenever I talk to some you know artists of your stature they always, they always say the same thing. They say, I'm not big on accolades. Some of them despise the rock hall. Some of them just really don't care at all, but they, just like you to a person, they all say, I'm glad for my fans because every year they're always mounting the campaign. So that's funny to hear you say the same, <laughs> the same exact thing. It's all about the music for you, I guess you could care less about the accolades, right?
1: <laughs> um. Well, pretty much, you know, I've always felt that like a hall of fame was meant for when you, uh, retired or died, because that's when they can sort of take the measure of what you've done. But if you're still a working musician, Hall of Fame doesn't make any sense. You're not done. Who knows? Maybe your best work is yet to come. So. uh, In that way, it's like, you know, I don't think anyone who's still working as a musician wants to simply rest on their laurels and accept the um, that's some kind of thing that like puts a bracket on what they've done, you know, okay, we're giving you this award for your work between this year and this year, you know, instead of, um, like I say, I think if if somebody retires, then you can take the measure of what they've done, but if they're still working, you know, it's kind of, it's just kind of weird. <laughs>
0: Right. It's like inducting Hank Aaron in the Hall of Fame before his career is over. He's still hitting homers, you know. Exactly. You know,
1: you don't know how good he is yet. So it's like so it's like uh, you got to wait until somebody's retired or dead. (laughs)
0: life achievement award while the life is still going on and the music still cranking out. Um, Well, either way, um, you know, who knows, I'm going to try to put a positive spin on it. Maybe, maybe some young viewer will tune in on what is it? HBO max or whatever streaming. And then they'll, maybe they'll discover your music that way. You know, some Jay-Z fan or Foo Fighters fan will tune in to see those guys. And then, then they'll
1: discover Todd Runger. Maybe I don't know. Well, they say that catalog sales is the, is the benefit you get out of it. You know, people will go back and start buying the old records. So that's uh, that's fine with me. I have a new record coming out, you know, in, the, in the, sometime in the future. And I will be making records, more records after that. So,
0: What's that new uh, one called? When, and do we know when it's coming out? Uh,
1: I still don't have the actual release date. You know, I've delivered the record already. Um, But we've taken a kind of old fashioned approach to promoting it. Uh, I've been releasing singles and I think on the 19th or something of October this month, um, we release our fourth single from the record. Um, So it's kind of like the old days when you release singles and then when you had enough of them, you put an album together. Um, I've already got the album together, but we are releasing singles until the album actually comes out. So me and the roots will have a single out, I think sometime in October. Oh, with the roots with the roots. Yeah.
0: Wow. What was it like working with them? I mean, you don't necessarily think of the same genre, but I can totally hear it in my head.
1: We're both from Philly, you know, it's kind of, it's a Philadelphia thing. Um, yeah this uh you know it's another record of collaboration so you know the previous singles i put out one was with a montreal rapper named narcy and one was with uh rivers cuomo from weezer and one was with sparks um so this will be the fourth single on there's you know another another eight songs on the record
0: very very cool well well have our listeners look out for that for sure. Um, great. Well, you mentioned mentioned that you're you know you're from Philadelphia. Take me back to those days. You know you're born in what in '48 in Philly. Uh, how you know what what sort of music was around in the household either your parents played or you know I want to know what what got you yeah you, you know bit by the bug and say I'm gonna you know, I'm gonna pursue a career in this thing.
1: Well, my parents didn't listen to anything that qualified as pop music past like the early '50s. I mean, once there was such a thing as rock and roll, none of that was really played inside my house. But my dad was still a music fan and he liked to listen to um, contemporary classical music and show, you know, Broadway musicals and that kind of thing. So I got exposed to symphonic music and stage music at a fairly early age. And of course, as I was growing up, um, there was radio and while rock and roll so-called rock and roll was on the radio, it was also mixed with a lot of kind of junk, <laughs> Frankie Avalon and that kind of thing. You know, so, um, so the station that we preferred to listen to was, uh, well, the DJ, his name was Jerry Blavitt and he played mostly R and B records. Uh, so, I became much more interested in R&B than than conventional pop music. And that found its way into my music in the same way that it's, you know, influenced Hall & Oates and and a lot of other musicians from Philadelphia. So I think we were sort of fortunate, you know, we're on, you know, Washington is right there on the Mason-Dixon line as well you know, the border between what was traditionally thought of the North and South. And as you started to get South from, you know, the you know, the Southern border of Pennsylvania, you'd hear less and less R&B music because it was considered, they were considered race records and they were only played on low, low powered black stations. So it became less and less familiar to, you know, to a white audience, but we were sort of fortunate you know, that we were right on that borderline and, you know, had a real radio station with a real um, listener reach and it played mostly R&B.
0: Wow. Thanks for taking me back into the, those, your roots, I guess, pun not intended, but um Cool. Well, tell me about um, sort of the transition between. I know you had that psychedelic band. Is it Nas or Nas? How did you How do you pronounce it? The
1: Nas. yeah. <laughs> Nas.
0: So you're in the you know you're in the late 60s and you're doing psychedelic stuff, with, fitting for the time with Nas. Um, but t- take me into you know sp- doing that and then spinning off and say you know I'm gonna go solo.
1: Well, the NAS only lasted about eighteen months, from the time I formed the band till we, you know, just couldn't stand each other anymore. <laughs> it didn't take long, but we were all like under—we were all in our, you know, late teens and uh, not particularly mature. The oldest guy in the band was um, Carson, and he was actually attending art school at the same time that we were trying to be successful as a band. And that was one of the things that happened. He decided to return to art school. So he was the first one to leave. And then shortly after that, I decided that I, that being in a band didn't work for me anymore. And for a while, I was just on the streets in New York. Um, I was, you know, just sleeping with, at friends' apartments and I was doing, installing lights in a discotheque. <laughs> you know, I was just doing anything to survive. And then I got contacted by, um, the Albert Grossman organization, um, mostly b- because at the end of the life of the NASA, I started taking over the, um, production duties and I was doing some engineering as well. And, um, the, organ, the Albert Grossman organization, uh, as you may or may not know, originally built their roster around folk artists like Bob Dylan and Peter Paul and Mary and, and a few blues artists and stuff like that. So they brought me into the organization to kind of modernize um, the records that their artists were making um, just because I had more of a... More of an interest in, you know, like cutting edge technologies and where music was going and that sort of thing. So, initially, I was just an engineer and producer. And after a couple of projects, I asked, um, I asked management and the label if they would give me a budget to do a vanity project. You know, just record some of my own songs, and then I'd go back to work making records for other people and accidentally had a hit record off of my first album. And then that kind of sucked me into becoming a performer.
0: And that accidental hit was We Gotta Get You A Woman, your first top 40 hit there. I believe it was like 1970. Um, and then tell me, I want—I definitely want to go into some of your, your better known songs because my listeners will kill me if we don't break down a couple of your famous hits. But real quick, tell me about Forming Utopia as well. That was like early 70s, right?
1: Yeah, it was... Um, we had a, uh, a studio of our own, one of the ideas that I got after I had, um, after I had done like my third album, which was something anything. Uh, I wanted to have more control over the process because I wanted to be a little more experimental in, in my music so we built a studio of our own. And it was kind of, you know, our big playpen we never paid studio bills anymore, and we. It formed sort of a little group of musicians who would play on each other's records, and that became the core of Utopia. You know, people who had played on uh, on something, anything, and the album following that, a Wizard, a True Star, that became the kind of the basis of Utopia. Um, And the reason why I formed Utopia was because I had been. Um, more and more of my writing had become focused around the piano I found it easier to write songs with the piano and uh, I had invested so much time in trying to become a, you know a decent guitar player that I didn't want to lose um, any of those chops so I essentially formed a band that was all about playing and that was a big thing at the time there were a lot of you know prog rock Prog rock was big, and there were prog rock bands like Yes who would do epic long songs, you know, with lots of instrumental passages. And There was Mahavishnu Orchestra, you know, where people were playing so blindingly fast, you could barely catch up. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to play a lot. So we formed Utopia, and and our early gigs would last sometimes three and a half, four hours (laughs) because everybody had to take a solo on every song. And uh, yeah, I became kind. I had kind of like two careers at that point, my solo career that would focus on, you know, my more usually my more piano based material and then Utopia, which would be in which I was the guitar player.
0: Right, right. There's two kind of parallel careers happening at the same time. Well, yeah, let's go into some of your solo stuff. Um, you know, you mentioned something, anything, 1972, your, your big your big breakthrough album. I guess it might have been like your third album, but that's when you really went, you know, I guess mainstream people would start recognizing some of this stuff. So um, tell me about the creation of I Saw the Light. Didn't you, not to be confused with the Hank Williams record, but um, I Saw the Light, didn't you crank famously crank that out really fast? Writing it?
1: Yeah, it took me about twenty minutes. Wow. You know? Um well it's not if you break it down, it's not a particularly complicated song. It's, you know, as a matter of fact, it's only got the the changes in the uh uh in the chorus are really almost incidental. You know, the chorus is hardly a chorus at all. Um, And the rhymes are really lame. (laughs) The rhymes are just a moon, June, spoon, you know, light, night, fight, I don't know. You know, it's just part of the reason why it was so easy to write was because it's kind of such a shallow idea to start with. Um, And it was one of the reasons, you know, why I started to... um, take a different tack on um, on my records after that when I would um, write I invested I think a little bit more originality into the process um, prior to that I was trying to understand you know how songwriting worked and I was listening to a lot of other songwriters and kind of copying the form um, that almost everybody did and every song you wrote was about you know, getting being in love or getting your heart broken or something and uh and eventually it started to seem like formulaic to me so there was a big kind of schism between something anything and a wizard true star in terms of how i approach songwriting
0: great great thanks for taking me into that evolution of you yeah, and, and the honesty to look in yourself and, and see how you, you grew even in that amount of time um well real just to double back to something anything the other big hit was hello it's me um you know one of those uh, you know classic breakup songs like you're talking about but um tell me and take me into the creation of that that was like one of the most more, more famous ballads of that time
1: well I, it was originally um written for the Nas, and it was the very first song that i ever wrote um The Nas was doing all cover songs, you know, before we ever got a record deal. And we realized we wouldn't get a record deal unless we had some original material. So I said, "Okay, I got to start writing, even though I had never thought much about it before. And I had a musical idea and then I had a lyric idea and I put them together. And Hello, It's Me was born. And then it became the B-side of our first single open my eyes and open my eyes did not become the hit that we wanted it to be Um, radio essentially flipped the record over and started playing the b-side and so hello it's me was a minor hit for the nas the only thing the only radio exposure we ever got and years later when i'm you know making a solo record i thought maybe the song could use an update you know a little peppier tempo and a and a more of an r and arrangement as opposed to the dirgy vibes central you know i was actually playing a vibraphone on the nas version <laughs> so uh, just did it in an afternoon of you know three recordings we did two other re- recordings that afternoon and the significant difference between that song and the, and, and the other songs that were on side four was that uh, when I started making Something Anything, I hadn't actually planned to make a double album. It's just that I got so into the songwriting formula that it quickly ballooned into a double album and three sides of it were just me playing everything and I thought, let's do a 4 side that's all live in the studio um, just as kind of a a, a a different uh a different experience in terms of making it and a different kind of experience in terms of listening to it and uh, also a sort of a return to like my earliest days like when the nas was doing auditions trying to get a record label and essentially you would go into the label studio and they'd give you a half an hour to record as many songs as you could so everything was done live you did there was no time to do overdubs you know you would do a couple of takes of each song trying to get the best one and then after half an hour you got the boot so uh i had never done you know i'd never done live performance in the studio vocals and all before and i thought well let's go really old school and see how it works and essentially got lucky with hello it's me
0: that's great that's great um all right and then um if i'm just moving a little chronological we don't have time for everything but um tell me about um i guess what was it it's 1978 yeah it was off of herman and mink um can we still be friends another famous song um that i re- i actually this will this will date my age but i re- i remember hearing it in dumb and dumber <laughs> Which uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you'd compose the score for that whole movie too, right? So I guess, take I guess that, well, that's sort of a two-parter. Take me into the original creation of that and then how sort of it got new life and you even got asked to do that movie.
1: Well, that's actually my most covered song. It's the song that's been most covered by other artists. Uh, Rod Stewart did it. Robert Palmer did it. Uh, Colin Blundstone did it <laughs> from the zombies. Um <laughs> yeah for some reason that song um i'm plagued by ballads like there's no way that i seems like there's no way i can get a song on the radio that isn't a ballad of some kind (laughs) so uh i'm just happy you know that uh people appreciate the um the songwriting and think that it's got a universal enough appeal that they can you know that they can uh, represent it and so in that sense it's just another song for me because it didn't become a a big hit for me it just became a familiar song because of all of the other artists who covered it
0: right exactly well you did it first so there you go you get the cred Uh, yeah yeah yeah. (laughs) exactly well of course the Maybe time for one more, but we got to ask about bang the drum on bang on the drum all day. That one is something I feel like if you say your name, Todd Rundgren, that's the first thing that anyone anywhere can they can pull it or even if they don't know your name, they play that song. Oh, I know that one. Um, Yeah, they know
1: the song because they probably sang it at a sporting event somewhere.
0: Yeah, I think it was on, what, the, like, jock rock or jock jams or whatever, and then every stadium anthem just pumps that out, but take me into the creation of that, because on the one hand, it, because it's a departure from some of your other stuff, it's a, it's kind of a goofy, funny, like, I'm just I'm just balls to the wall, like, but it, if you really want to strip it down beneath the fun, it's sort of a universal theme, right, of that whole, like, I don't want an office job, I want to be a musician kind of a thing. <laughs>
1: Well, occasionally when I get into like an album project, particularly if I'm doing it all by myself and there's no other musicians, uh, and I have to sort of imagine all the music myself, uh, my subconscious will start uh, writing music without any help from my conscious mind. And uh, I was in the middle of doing... uh, a record, I th- it, the record was, um, I think the ever popular tortured artist effect, something of a protest record against my label at the time. <laughs> and, um, and I essentially dreamed the song, I was asleep. And the song, you know, was playing fully realized in my head. Really? And, and I woke up and went down to the studio and, and quickly uh, recorded everything that I I could remember of it and then kind of filled it out with um with new lyrics and stuff but the chorus was fully realized in my head that whole book was woke up with the
0: chorus in your head
1: (laughs) yeah it was a it was a gift from somewhere literally you know in a sense that you don't know what this means now but someday you know (laughs) you will know because the label never even released it as a single it was never released as a single I don't know how it found its way, first of all, into uh, state into uh, stadiums and things like that. I think first it was like hockey games. Um, and then it became a football anthem, particularly for like the Green Bay Packers. They still play it every time they score. Uh, a couple other teams, when the Rams were still in St. Louis, they used to play it every time they scored. And so, yeah, there's this vast audience that knows the song, but has no idea why they know it. (laughs) And then the payoff came when, you know, suddenly it's, you know, a party anthem for everyone. And all of these like film companies and, uh, and people who do commercials for things, when they want a party atmosphere, they use the song. So I would be getting, you know, like it was the Carnival Cruise Lines theme song for a while. You know, and I would get, you know, great big six and seven figure checks from them for the use of the song. Um, And I think most of the people who heard the song in the commercials had no idea who's doing the song. They just know the song and they associate it with a good time. So the song was a gift to me that eventually later would actually pay off in, in real serious guilt.
0: I love that. It appeared to you in a dream and then it, it, it came from somewhere else and it, and it took on a life of something else what an, uh, exactly. so that wouldn't fascinate anyone. Exactly. sparks I mean, an interesting it, question for me then too, is have you ever been standing in a sports arena and
1: hear that come on and do you just smile or do you kind of cover your face? <laughs> what do you do? Uh, well, I, I have to say that I haven't been in a lot of arenas. Um, my uh, oldest son was a professional baseball player for like 11 years. Um, and they must have played the song somewhere at, at some point, you know, in which case I give it <laughs> it's a lame acknowledgement or whatever. But for the most part, you know, I have, I don't recall the last time I was in a, oh yes, I suddenly remember <laughs> I have. I have heard it played because I conducted it at <laughs> Notre Dame. I did a residence in Notre Dame like five, six years ago, or something like that. And one of the things I did, it was, it was a homecoming game uh, at Notre Dame. And in the, I in the actual the mar- stadium? In the actual stadium, and I conducted the marching band doing Bang the Drum. Wow.
0: Wow. Instead of Rudy, it was run, grin, run,
1: grin. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and the year after that, I was essentially the, uh, the, the, homecoming King. I got to ride around in a, you know, in a convertible <laughs> before the homecoming game. Wow.
0: Just taking over the mayor of South Bend for a day. <laughs> yeah.
1: It's a, uh, you know, I, I, I never went to college. Um, but that hasn't stopped me from, you know, presuming that I can tell college kids, you know, what the world's about. Well,
0: you can't go to college and bang on a drum all day, man. You can't go no time for class. But, yeah. Uh,
1: well, essentially, yeah. <laughs> cool. Cool. Well, you've been more than
0: generous with your time. So maybe just final question, just in closing, Um, you know, like we're talking about these big anthems like bang on the drum all day, or, you know, we've, we've mentioned some of your pop songs or your ballads that went on to become covered and hits and stuff like that, but you never, you know, you never really stuck to the, the pop realm. And I actually thought that was kind of a, a credit to you. You, you know, you did sort of the prog rock stuff. You, you, you really veered into pioneering a lot of, a, what would you call it? Like electronic music and you know, music videos and even computer software, internet music delivery. Like why was sort of the computerized and, the, and, and technological avenues, why were you sort of drawn to that? Like, I mean, it's hard to ask a Thomas Edison why he invented a light bulb, but why were why you, so, why, why you so fascinated by the new tech avenues?
1: Well, it started when I was very young. Um, first of all, my dad was an engineer. Um, he worked at DuPont. And so, you know, technology was just kind of like part of our lives. He would bring home stuff from the lab uh, experiments that they were doing or trying to duplicate from other other experiments. And uh, so I was very comfortable with it. Um, I was also kind of a runty child and was getting picked on all the time. So when I saw War of the Worlds, no, uh, said it no it's not war of the worlds it's a forbidden planet with Uh, robbie the robot and i decided that i wanted to build myself a robot pal (laughs) to protect me (laughs) and i realized that a significant part of it was a robot brain you know and that that would involve you know what at the time was very rudimentary um some very rudimentary electronics uh one of my favorite things Uh, to do was you know we would occasionally have a family outing to the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia which is essentially a big tech museum and I would you know I would spend a lot of time playing tic-tac-toe against a very rudimentary computer that was made out of telephone relays (laughs) and uh and so I was always fascinated with that and uh and I learned about you know, cybernetics and alternative number systems before I was even in high school. And so by the time I got to the end of high school, there were only two alternatives for me. I could go to tech school and learn uh, how to program computers or I could become a musician and we didn't have the money to send me to tech school. And also I hated living at home so i just left home on my 18th birthday and fortunately enough got into a band not too long after that so you know i don't know if you're aware of this but there is a you know people who appreciate math and logic also appreciate music because music is essentially essentially a mathematical exercise right and um i you know, almost every computer programmer that I know is also a musician. Uh, it isn't necessarily the other way around, but you'd be surprised how, how much overlap there is uh, in terms of um, math and computer coding and music and, and how in some people's minds they're interchangeable.
0: It's funny you mentioned that. What was it? A couple of weeks ago, we interviewed the musician um, Stanley Jordan,
1: and he said he, oh,
0: he recorded yeah. the startup music for some of the Apple Macintoshes. So, yeah, you're right. It's intertwined a lot of it.
1: And I know. I remember seeing going to see Stanley uh, at one of his gigs, and then he showed me his tour bus, and he had a whole freaking computer set up in the back of his tour bus, and he was programming fourth, <laughs> which is a really obscure – computer language that nobody uses anymore but requires it just a certain way of thinking
0: i love the image of of stanley Stanley jordan and todd rundgren in the back of a tour bus not on with guitars but going over computers and robbie the robot's probably there with you i'm
1: talking about computer languages and stuff yeah
0: Wow, that's priceless. Well, thank you so much for all of that. And That's fascinating. We, I think we covered a lot of ground in a little time. So thanks so much, Todd Rundgren. Again, everybody at the Capitol Turnaround in Washington, D.C., October 17th and 18th. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much.
1: Perfect. Thank you. And we'll see you in D.C.